episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to uh, another episode of our show with another fascinating guest uh, helping to create a better tomorrow on many different fronts. Um, today, we have the opportunity to be joined by Colonel Dr. David Barnes, who is Chief Artificial Intelligence Ethics Officer at the United States Army Artificial Intelligence Task Force, a professor at the United States Military Academy at West Point, a Senior Artificial Intelligence Ethics Advisor at DARPA, uh, and also a 30 uh, a plus year career officer in the United States Army. Uh, at the United States Military Academy, uh, Colonel Dr. Barnes is the deputy head uh, in the Department of English and Philosophy and a research associate for their Center for Innovation and Engineering. Uh, he serves on the editorial board for the Journal of Military Ethics and on the board of directors for the International Society for Military Ethics. And his current research interests include ethics, applied ethics, especially in the area of ethics of war, including just war tradition, humanitarian interventions, military privatization, as well as the ethical considerations of artificial intelligence and other new technologies. Uh, in addition to all that, uh, he is a research fellow at the Stockholm Center for the Ethics of War and Peace, uh, Department of Philosophy at the University of Stockholm. Um, he's also an accomplished author with his book, The Ethics of Military Privatization of the United States Armed Contractor Phenomena, which we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, Colonel Dr. Barnes has his uh, bachelor's in aeromechanical engineering from the United States Military Academy at West Point, his master's in philosophy, University of Massachusetts Amherst, and his PhD in philosophy from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, and just for a, a little background for some of our um, ex-US um, uh, viewers, the United States Military Academy, also known as West Point, is a four-year federal service academy in West Point, New York. The mission is to educate, train, and inspire the Corps of Cadets, so each graduate uh, becomes a commissioned leader of character, committed to the values of duty, honor, country, and is prepared for a career of professional excellence and service to the nation as an officer in the United States Army. Uh, Colonel Dr. David Barnes, thank you for taking the time to join our show, and obviously thank you for your long uh, service to the country. Oh, thank you so much, Ira. And I just want to thank uh, uh, you and uh, all of the, the, the listeners out there for the chance to discuss uh, some of the important topics that are emerging today with uh, new technology, uh, and uh, especially in, in the sense how my curious background is, has led me to this area and uh, how we might uh, be able to work together to make, uh, uh, in the sense, AI better for society for everyone. Um, I must start with uh, an initial disclaimer, of course, that uh, these are my own views and don't necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, the United States Army, the United States Military Academy, or any other uh, department or agency of the U.S. government. So having have that out of the way. <laughs> Absolutely. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I love to you know, start off as we typically do, um, hand you the floor for a little bit so we can sort of further get to know you. If you can sort of take us back to the beginning, everything from uh, where you grew up, um, your your initial sort of entry into, into the service. And then I also noticed that, you know, you did your PhD um, actually in the middle of, of, of several deployments from what I saw in the bio, sort of I, somewhere between, I guess, Afghanistan, Iraq, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but talk a little bit also about your interest in, in, in doing uh, these studies, especially the PhD in, in the philosophy and war, of war and peace. That'd be great. Uh, absolutely. Um, many say that, I, you know, perhaps I'm some kind of unicorn, but I think everyone would agree that's a bit of an odd duck. Uh, as you mentioned in the, in the intro, I, I've, I've been in uniform for, for well over three decades uh, and spent most of my time in the operational army. I'm an armor officer. I've been deployed on numerous occasions. Um, and, and that's really also informed my thinking about uh, ethics and just beyond uh, uh, the, the teaching of applied ethics that we do here at the academy in terms of the ethics of war. So a, a bit about how I, I arrived at this place. Uh, my dad worked for IBM. He was in the Air Force when he was younger. Um, and, and so I was used to moving a, a lot in my life. But one of the major influences was my grandfather who made a career enlisted in the Army Air Corps and then in the Air Force and then as, a, as an Air Force civilian uh, and retired out of there. Um, and so I knew um, from a very young age that, that I wanted to, to serve the country uh, in some capacity. I was very fortunate in all those movings around uh, to be able to secure a nomination uh, to the military academy. And as you mentioned, 
uh, I studied aerospace engineering. Uh, I've always been drawn to, to, to the, the STEM side of things, which may seem a bit ironic to people uh, when you know, we mention ethics and philosophy. Uh, but you know, I was fascinated with designing of, of helicopters, of, of airplanes, uh, uh, rockets. Um, I envisioned myself as, as a rocket scientist one day and be able to use those kinds of skills. Uh, what I didn't know is that uh, eventually, along in, my, in my, my long career, I would have an opportunity, in particular in this area of ethics of an emerging technology, to be able to reach back to that uh, engineering education that I, that I had uh, back in the day. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm uh, very fortunate uh, to, to lead and uh, uh, soldiers and non-commissioned officers uh, in a variety of assignments, uh, both at home, uh, stateside and overseas. Uh, it was deployed on a number of occasions and the conflicts uh, that we've had over the last 20 years. Um, and it was during those conflicts though, when I had some free time and probably it wasn't so much during those conflicts, but, but when I returned home and had time to sort of process things, um, I began to think about um, how we were using new technology, but even prior to that, some of the new mission sets that we were being asked to perform. Uh, for example, uh, you know, training and preparing for conducting uh, uh, peacekeeping and humanitarian operations in, in Bosnia and Kosovo, for example, seemed to be, you know, tangential to, to how we had normally trained. Um, and so when I went back to school, I was given the opportunity to, to study philosophy and earn my master's degree at UMass Amherst. I studied the ethics of intervention. I, I wanted to, to, to pull the, the threads a bit on, on that seemingly new area uh, and, and what was involved in terms of the ethical decision-making behind a state determining to, to, in a sense, intervene in another state, but for uh, humanitarian reasoning. Mm. Um, and so that was really fascinating. And that began sort of this uh, study of mine where I've had a boot in two camps, both on the operational side of the army, as, as you mentioned, right? Periodically returning to units and deploying, but also having the opportunity to serve here at the military academy at West Point, where uh, it, periodically during my career, I was able to uh, teach the young men and women that would very soon take on the, the mantle of that leadership in the army and help prepare them for a lifetime career to the nation. And so it was an opportunity to do something that I really enjoyed that was teaching, but it also really allowed me to, to explore some other areas. And so much of what I do now is, is very much motivated by how we are, are educating and preparing not just the young leaders here, mm -hmm. but how we might think about educating everybody in our country and society on whether it's we're talking about a new technology or the, the, the policy decisions that, that our leadership makes. And so after that time, I returned back to the force and, and uh, you know, deployed to Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And I was, I was given an, a, a very uh, rare opportunity to continue my philosophical studies, which for so long had been this really neat habit. I call it a habit of mine, something that I enjoy doing. Uh, one great thing about philosophy is that you really get to study the underpinnings of almost any subject. You know, for example, the philosophy of law. I don't need to be a lawyer to study the philosophy of law or even something in the uh, STEM area, the philosophy of mathematics. You know, what mm. are numbers, for example? Sure. And so it was always something that I was interested in. Now I actually got to do that uh, deliberately. After earning my PhD uh, in, in Boulder, the area that I focused on there was exploring privatization. Mm. I had the, uh, the, the privilege with working with many very professional uh, security contractors uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but I was really curious about uh, th this notion of, of, of outsourcing and outsourcing in a way that perhaps to many seem antithetical to, to having a standing professional military um, and how we might strike a balance between those because there seem to be a lot of benefits, although much of the, the, the conversation, especially in the news, was concerned with these high visibility uh, uh, incidents and tragedies. Sure. Um, and so uh, I, I used that, that uh, opportunity that I had while I was at Boulder to, to explore, again, the ethical perspectives, what sort of underpin um, 
you know, some, some normative thinking about whether it was morally permittable for, for us to turn to outsourcing? And if so, then to what degree? Uh, re returning uh, to West Point to teach, um, you know, I, I was able to take on additional responsibilities um, and, and very rapidly became uh, one of the, 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 the senior philosophers and ethicists in, in the army. So I was dabbling in some other projects. And so when I returned back to West Point, I had some colleagues in, in the engineering department that were looking at uh, new research areas exploring uh, soldier enhancement mm -hmm. uh, robotics and, and, and um, you know, what, what started out as just some friendly discussions of, about some of these, you know, potential ethical considerations, we realized as a group that although in your ABED education at the time, you know, this was years ago, you know, it was mandatory to have some subject, uh, some education, some classes on ethical considerations, let's say for civil engineering, for example, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it really was nascent at the time. Um, but that really opened my eyes to, to not only the potential that emerging technology is going to have, but the, the real need for a robust and meaningful conversation about doing it in a responsible way. Um, se several of those individuals ended up moving from the military academy where they're here teaching and they went to work at DARPA and became project managers there. Mm -hmm. And I was able to continue to foster those relationships. Had an, an additional uh, uh, deployment uh, this time to, to, to Kuwait, Jordan, et cetera. Um, but that really began to, to solidify some of my thinking in this space. Again, partially how to better prepare our, our students here, um, but also is there a way that we can contribute mm -hmm. interdisciplinary perspectives about emerging technology? So here's an example. Uh, it, it's happened to a number of people, right? And in a sense, it's anecdotal, but you know, a well-meaning contractors would show up on, on, on the FOBs, the Ford operating base with a, mm -hmm. with a new uh, ground robot. Um, and focus was testing it out. It had been tested at home, but now we're, we're, we're trying to see how best to employ it in, in an operational environment. But upon reflection, there really wasn't much guidance in that, that, that testing and that employment in terms of the ethical considerations. In other words, what do I need to know as the commander or perhaps as a user about um, unanticipated sort of effects of, of using uh, a, a UGV or uh, unmanned ground vehicle um, in, in, in combat or even in, in other areas. Um, and, and so this led then uh, combined with my relationships on a very exciting project that uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Phil Root uh, from DARPA uh, ha has led uh, we realize now it's, it's been, you know, since 2018. And his project is called uh, URSA, uh, Urban Reconnaissance with Supervised Autonomy. Okay. And it's one of many DARPA projects, right? Because again, DAR the intention of DARPA is to push the boundaries on what technology is possible mm -hmm. to, to, to ensure that, that, that the US is not blindsided by other technological advantages. But this one was unique. What we decided to do is can we form a team of subject matter experts that can help inform the different uh, uh, performers uh, throughout the process in, in the phase one and two in thinking about the legal, moral, and ethical considerations that may be involved with developing new technology, in particular, uh, this notion of supervised autonomy, with the idea that, you know, like many DARPA projects, you're pushing the boundaries that technology may not work. But what we agreed was it was much too late to think about um, the legal considerations and ethical considerations at the very end when the, right. the military, for example, was about to adopt it. Sure. And this has been a very uh, successful uh, project. Um, and and DARPA is looking at ways to, to, to take this kind of process and thinking and expand it in, into other sectors. Then coincidentally, uh, the Army reshuffled its a research and development and acquisition under uh, a four-star entity called uh, uh, Army Futures Command. Mm -hmm. And uh, in essentially, not much changed down below in terms of the processes, but it allowed uh, a, 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 a chain of command focused on generating efficiencies. In other words, you know, if, if we have parallel projects that are, that are working and have 
through some gap analysis, an area uh, where uh, an advance in, in technology might satisfy both of those projects, or at least be able to advance it, then could we do a, a cleaner job of, of coordinating that for, and resourcing that for them? And there are, are uh, you know, 12 different cross-functional teams that are built upon the different projects that, that, that the Army's working on, uh, both you know, maintaining what we currently have, but also looking over the horizon to 2035 and beyond. Part of that is the uh, Army's Artificial Intelligence Task Force. Um, and it's a, it was a very small organization meant to be agile, not designed to, to, to take control of all the Army's artificial intelligence research and development, but to be able to provide a, you know, one belly button, a touch point to help coordinate for the Army and, and do some of this de deconfliction. And you know, it's connected to the artificial intelligence hub, the AI hub mm -hmm. that's located uh, in Pittsburgh um, and uh, in close partnership with Carnegie Mellon, the National uh, Robotics Engineering Center. Um, and it has, uh, you know, 11 other academic partners. Um, and I it was fortunate for me, and I can go into to greater detail about it, but as it happened, um, it was an opportunity for me to, in a sense, do a bit of sabbatical, do some time of uh, uh, giving back to the Army from my teaching position here. Um, and, you know, in conversation with a director and a deputy director at the time, we understood that there was this need to, to further explore the, the legal, ethical, societal considerations of artificial intelligence. There was, there was certainly a lot um, of, of interest generated in, in the news and, and, and controversy as well. Um, and we thought there was an opportunity to, 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 to create a role like the one that I fill as the mm -hmm. chief AI ethics officer uh, to be able to explore it in a more um, uh, rigorous manner. Sure. And my focus area um, broadly were in two areas, the, the up and out look, and that was you know, everything from advising Army senior leadership about the responsible uh, development and use of AI, as well as you know, working with the Joint AI Center, uh, the National Security Commission on AI, uh, the Defense Innovation Board, um, in order to help shape that conversation that was uh, happening across uh, DOD, not just within the Army. And I was very fortunate to, to be part of uh, the writing team for the, the innovation board to help generate those AI principles, which the Secretary of Defense, Esper, uh, uh, signed off on in February of last year. So the D Department of Defense has adopted those. So that was very exciting uh, to be a part of that program. And then down and in, it was beginning to think how the Army uh, will implement, um, thinking about uh, ethics and artificial intelligence in a meaningful way. And, and really, in other words, is, is how do we do two things? One is better educate and train the force, right? From the youngest private all the way up to the secretary level yep. on the benefits of artificial intelligence, but also uh, the risks and limitations of it and cut through a lot of the noise that, that, that seems to be occurring about it, right? To, so that they're better prepared um, uh, for, for employing it in the future. And then the other aspect was, how do we take those aspirational principles and put them into practice, mm -hmm. right? Because it's one thing to have those guidelines and they're absolutely necessary. And again, I'm very proud of the work that the department has done in a sense, attempting to lead in this space. But if we want to take a principle like responsible or equitable, how does that translate down into particular programs? Sure. And, and, and what then are, are the metrics associated with that? You know, you know, the, a phrase you hear is how do we operationalize those principles? Yep. And a lot of that work is, is very nascent now. Um, and, 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 but the Army is much like the rest of the department. In a sense, you know, the rest of, of, of uh, the, the private sector as well, you know, with large corporations also uh, having uh, their versions of, of ethical principles. And, and how do they uh, put it in practice that works well for them? Right, because the overall desire is, is in the sense is to, you know, from a commercial standpoint is, is to, of course, have, you know, excellent technology that's going to be beneficial, right? It's also going to be, be profitable, but do it in a way that's going to benefit not just the company, but the rest of society. So the, and there's so much more work to be done in this space. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I, I think that gives a, a, a good sort of overview of, 
um, kind of the problem space, but also how I found myself uh, in a sense, a, a large part of it. Outstanding. Outstanding. Really, really, really fascinating and, and, and amazing sort of not just amazing background, but the uh, amazing set of sort of cross-functional responsibilities that you have. And I take my hat off to you if I had one-on-one that, uh, you know, you have this uh, uh, package, uh, this portfolio of, of things you have to think about and, and that are so extremely important. Um, I wanted to uh, drill down a bit. And, I, you know, you gave us a, a great overview of, uh, of the AI hub, the futures command. Um, I, I was reading, you know, you've been quoted a lot uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of activity in the popular press on the AI front. Um, you know, you've been quoted um, a bit recently in the news about a principle called total zone reconnaissance, where you talk about uh, the interesting model where there's sort of the combination of the, the manned and the unmanned uh, vehicles, whether they're aerial, ground vehicles and so forth, and this interesting sort of uh, set of, of nodes that, um, basically integrate the, the soldiers and potentially these uh, advanced technologies. And, and it was very interesting. Um, a, there was a white paper I came across where you were referenced. Uh, the, the title of the paper was The Ethics of Acquiring Disruptive Technologies, AI Autonomous Weapons and Decision Support Systems. And, and, you, and you specifically, they reference your a study on something known as on the loop uh, versus in the loop, in essence, where the human or sort of how much you take the human out of certain aspects of artificial intelligence. Could you talk about what the difference is between on the loop and in the loop and where sort of the what the important balance is there when we pair uh, humans with some of these uh, technologies? So, so, so in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased that, that, that some of my work in thinking is, is getting out there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, I think uh, that the in the loop, on the loop, off the loop sort of mental construct is useful, but it's only useful to a certain degree. What really underlies this is this idea of how we're going to integrate and use AI as a successful tool and at what level, right? So what's really sort of informing this idea is, is, is a number of concepts. One, you know, the concerns over lethal autonomy, of course, but, but also in all sorts of ways that we're going to envision human machine teaming or integration yep. now and, and in the future. And, and in a sense, you know, it, 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 it raises concerns about, you know, artificial intelligence or that kind of system taking jobs from people or how, how the workforce might, might modify to, 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 uh, to, to be able to incorporate that. Um, and, and a lot of that is in a sense is, is who is going to be responsible okay. and, and, and in terms of at what point in it. So the, 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 the loop uh, mental construct, the in the loop, on loop, off loop, borrows strongly from um, Boyd's uh, OODA loop, right? So uh, aren't observe, uh, <laughs> I have to come back to that. Um, but uh, the idea is that, you know, traditionally we think of the, the human in the loop. In other words, that that any sort of mechanical system, let alone one that might be uh, AI-enabled, um, will, will, in a sense, work out the calculations, if you would. But then it's it's up to the human, in a sense, to advance the system to the next set of decisions, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and and this is found in, in, in older expert systems and decision trees, but also even now in, in, uh, in, in more machine learning or, or deep learning type, okay. type machines, right? Um, Sort of the, the, the next level is the human on the loop, right? right. Where uh, in, in the sense that, that the human um, has override, right? So the system is, 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 is performing its tasks, you know, you know that, that it's, it's expected, that it's, that it's trained for, it's deployed for that reason, but the human can intervene um, and, 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 and if, if things begin to go awry or if the situation changes or becomes so complex that it's no longer beneficial to, to have that system functioning in that way. And then the, the off the loop is in a sense that um, at a certain point, uh, perhaps the technology will be advanced that, uh, you know, that the human will allow the system to, to run. It doesn't mean that there will never be the, a, a proverbial kill switch, um, but that the system, in a sense, has its own internal checks and balances. Perhaps it's generated through a layered system of artificial intelligence um, that it can adjust then to the environment and, 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 and move on its own. 
Uh, the, the problem I see with, with, with a bit of that, that mental framework is we, we very rapidly with almost any system shift from one of those mental buckets to another. Um, and and it, it's, we, we have, as we're working through this problem space, have to envision that the artificial intelligence system that we're talking about can be viewed in, in, from different standpoints. So one, it, it can be, it's a particular algorithm that's been trained on a particular set of data, right? And the computing power associated with that to, to perform a, a certain task, right? Very narrow version of narrow AI. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, 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 is even when we're using our, our smartphones today, that there are a number of different systems that are operating in conjunction with each other, right? One may be paused, one may not, but in a sense, it's, I think it's more fruitful to think of layered systems. Mm. And, and for the military and even for, for, uh, for you, know, you know, cross industry, you know, we, for a time, we'll have a lot of what, what, I'll, what we'll call legacy systems, right? In other words, you know, we, we'll try to, to uh, use artificial intelligence uh, systems in a sense to improve uh, the current systems and equipment that, that we already have mm -hmm. as we're developing from the ground up fully artificial uh, intelligence enabled uh, systems uh, uh, as a whole. And uh, I, I mentioned you know, this, that, that it's related to, to a notion of, of lethal autonomy because lethal autonomy tends to be the shiny object, right? It's, mm -hmm. it, there, there's a lot of concern. Um, there's also a lot of hyperbole about it, um, but you know, and, and part of that, I think, is unfortunate that it's informed by, by uh, you know, all of us, myself included, I'm, I'm sure you too, Ira, right? you know, growing up in, in, in with, with science fiction, yep. um, that, that that's sometimes isn't as helpful to really get to um, the, the, the grounding arguments that are both for and against and, and our concerns about lethal autonomy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when people think of the, the, the Army or the Department of Defense developing AI, immediately the thought goes that we're, we're going to use AI on the battlefield. And, and of course, that's true. Um, you know, that, that is part of our, our mandate, right, is to, is to defend the Constitution of the nation and have called upon to, to, to do that on the battlefield. But it's going to be much more ubiquitous, right? It's going to involve a lot of back, so-called back office applications. It's going to be used in areas such as predictive maintenance, such as talent management, you know, the human resource side. Uh, it can be used, you know, as I talked about with humanitarian interventions, um, there, there are projects in the Department of Defense looking at how we could leverage AI for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. For example, the, the fires in California, mm -hmm. right? Is there a way that we could better model them sure. or, or, or other natural disasters? Um, and, and the reason why that's important is when we focus on lethal autonomy, there's a tendency to think of, of, of the notion of killer robots, right? Sort of these, this independently... Um, a uh, fully autonomous system uh, with lethal capacity that's making uh, individual decisions ab about uh, whether to kill an individual or not. Mm -hmm. And, and we're, we are far away from that because sure. what, what everyone needs to understand on this call is that the army is going to design, develop, deploy, and use AI, much like any other technology, in accordance with our nation's values and the rule of law. Th this is a very important concept and it's informed by uh, the international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflict, uh, but it's also grounded in, in the philosophical theory of the, the just war tradition. Mm -hmm. In a sense that, that certain conduct is uh, morally permitted on the battlefield, but other is it's morally prohibited. Mm -hmm. And the two main focus areas are, are discrimination, the lawyers call it distinction, and proportionality. Um, and so from the uh, distinction discrimination standpoint, um, you cannot intentionally target a non-combatant or, or civilian, right? And so, you know, where artificial intelligence may actually assist in a positive way is enabling the commanders, the, the soldiers on that battlefield to make those clear-cut decisions, right? You know, in a sense, as Ron Arkin has said, is sort of remove some of the fog of war, right? These the, the systems in a sense, won't, won't get tired, they won't get angry. Um, but I would certainly appreciate, been involved in, in, in the numerous incidents uh, where potentially, or in fact, there were civilians killed, right? That could help part, me parse that out to, to mm -hmm. avoid the, those sort of incidents. Yep. And then there's the issue of the proportionality as well. So 
coming back to this, this notion of, of total reconnaissance in, in the system of systems is, it, it, I think it's in a way, um, lethal autonomy is, is, is hard to define. And I can talk a bit about that more in a bit, but where we really wanted to think about how we might leverage AI on the battlefield is to look at our current systems now, right? So um, you have uh, uh, systems um, right now that consist of, of humans conducting reconnaissance, looking for the enemy, looking for the best routes for movements. Mm. You have Intel analysts, again, humans that, that are sifting through that data, providing recommendations to the commander, right? Not just on, 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 on where the enemy might be, what's the best, best path, what potentially are, are, are areas that cannot be, be struck, right? They're, they're, um, they're, they're, they're valuable, they're, they're, they're um, whether it's a hospital, right? I mean, they're, they're prohibited targets. Um, and, and then you have the whole logistics chain. You have to match, you know, the, the, the weapon system to best engage to, to, to great certain effects, um, again, that are, that are lawful on the battlefield. And so what the Army is, is looking at through uh, Project Convergence is, is how do we, uh, one, decrease what we call the sensor to shooter time, right? But it's also the clearance of fires. Is there a way that we can leverage the technology so that we make less mistakes and we do it in a, a much more timely fashion so that we can be more effective in, in, in doing our mission? And, and, it's, and it's very important. I want everyone to understand that, that part of the consideration for leveraging technology to make better decisions on the battlefield, including those of, of, of discrimination, is you know, concerned over the well-being of our own soldiers. So that not only the, uh, in terms of uh, that, that sh you know, she may be uh, uh, you know, concerned about her safety or, or you know, the, you know, protecting her life in the, in, the, in the fight against the enemy, but we also want to avoid moral injury, which is in a sense, you know, the, the, uh, a, a, a mental uh, and, and uh, uh, disconnect between expectations of, of, of fighting justly on the battlefield with some of the, the harsh realities of war. In other words, you know, wh whether we're talking about PTS or, or moral injury, you know, is there a way that we can be more accurate, mm -hmm. more discriminating in terms of how we actually uh, uh, fight? Right, so that when our soldiers return home, you know they they won't they will bear less of a burden of, of some of those decisions or, or some of the things that they've witnessed, um, and that's that's certainly an, an area to further explore. Hmm. Really interesting. Uh, along those lines, Dave, the um, a couple of months ago, I, I, I did a show with um, uh, Dr. Julie Marble over at, uh, at Johns Hopkins, who you know specializes in sort of human factors in, in terms of uh, trust and with, with some of these autonomous systems. Uh, and this is something else that I, I think you, you've written a little bit about in terms of sort of the soldier-centered designs of some of these new technologies. Um, when it comes to sort of, you know, obviously the army is huge and you have a, a million plus uh, enlisted folks. Um, this is really new stuff uh, in terms of some of these tools. Uh, talk a little bit about sort of the trust issues that you have to deal with when you're teaching uh, some of these new technologies. Because I'm, you know, I'm sorry, sitting here and uh, you know, with with my movies and all, you know, there's always that scene in the and uh, in the movie nowadays where, hey, you know, the comms don't work. Okay, it's one thing, oh, the comms are down because X, Y, and Z, but. Uh, when it comes to the trusting, you know, my autonomous uh, partner here or, or whatever, talk a little bit about some of the what, some of the thinking that goes on in your sort of area of uh, of, of technology and innovation uh, when it comes to sort of the human autonomy pairing. Yeah, so so, so the, the human autonomy pairing, right? The, this the human machine integration question is, is just becoming more and more relevant, right? So it doesn't change the fact that artificial intelligence enabled system is going to be a tool, but it's going to be much more closely integrated, right? In a sense where it's not potentially something I just pick up and use like a rifle, like, like you know, like, you know, some other piece right. of equipment, but it's going to be more integrated in a way. In a way, um, it's, you know, Further down the road, right, as, as the machines get more and more intelligent, we can see potentially as, you know, even forming partnerships in, 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 a, in a way, right? And so the, the relevance of, of thinking about um, human-machine teaming um, needs to move beyond 
just thinking about the system itself, mm-hmm. right? So traditionally, you know, whether we're talking about testing evaluation and the Army, like a- across the, the, the Department of Defense, has a long history of rigorous test and evaluation to ensure the safety of, of new equipment and tools, um, to ensure that it's, that it's reliable to be uh, deployed. And we want to leverage that e- even as we move forward with this concept of human machine teaming. But this notion of trust is really interesting and I can't help, you know, but as a analytic philosopher to, to, to take a step back and unpack that a bit, right? Because how um, different people along the life cycle of an artificial intelligence system, right? From the design, development, deploy and use phase, um, all think about the concept of trust from their own potent, uh, vantage point, right? So strictly from a, a testing evaluation, we might be talking about the reliability of that particular tool, mm-hmm. right? But that seems necessary, but not sufficient when we think about the whole team, right? We, in other words, we can't just explore this from the tech side, yeah. right? Um, much like other uses of technology, even beyond human machine teaming, these are really um, what some have called a social tech problem, right? That, 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 that removing the human completely from that um, is, 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 is misguided, mm-hmm. right? But, and there is a lot of research from the human side, right? I mean, you have the, you know, people in behavioral science and psychology that are looking at, at human interactions, but um, th- there's gonna be something you know, potentially unique as, as we begin to use artificial intelligence enabled systems more and more. Um, so here, here's an, an example. Um, the the uh, heard the uh, uh, deputy commander of Futures Command ask, um, you know, how how do we get the soldiers to trust this new technology? Mm-hmm. Right, and and it seems a very simple question, um, but it, it it belies something a, a bit more complex, right? Because there's a combination of a notion that um, we have to ensure that it's reliable, right? That in a sense it's like a tool, right? Can, can you trust it? Does it perform as expected? This idea of justified confidence um, in its use. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if it fails, it's going to fail in an expected way. Um, these are the troubleshooting procedures that I know, um, you know, in, in, in the sense of that kind of trust. Um, but there's, I think it also sort of includes the, uh, the more uh, a human side of trust, mm-hmm. right? You know, when we think of trust between humans, right, it implies a, a relationship, um, in the sense there's there's a given there's a give and take. Um, there may be an expectation of um, that the, the other individual is going to have some obligations, or perhaps I will, and that may inform some duties to, to one another. You know, people can develop greater trust um, if someone keeps their promises. Perhaps they 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 lose some trust in another individual because they've done things that that perhaps uh, have not kept their promises or or, or, or done their duty. Um, and that seems different from just ensuring that the system, that tool functions as needed mm. now and, and as intended. And so in a sense, it requires a combination, a more holistic look at the human machine teaming, right? So you're getting both of those perspectives. But I, I do think even from the tech side, um, there, there are, are, is an important recognition to think about it um, from you know, the, the human and the behavior side as well as, as, as uh, f- from the other side. So for example, this notion of soldier-centered design, mm-hmm. right? If, if you think about um, designing any, any new product, right? Whether a company's doing that or whether the, the government's doing that for employment, um, you, know, they're, they're, you want to ensure that the, the user interface, the, the, the user design UI UX, right? Is, 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 is part of that program. But in a way, I think now with developing AI systems, we're really borrowing a bit from, from software um, where, where we think about how it's actually going to be employed. And you can't do that independently, no matter if you had, in a sense, subject matter experts, right? Who might be able to talk academically about how it's gonna be employed. It would be better to get actual users involved earlier in that life cycle, mm-hmm. right? To, to be able to make those adjustments in a sense, in a real time through the more agile, a design process that that uh, really everyone is adopting and thinking about artificial intelligence. So you know, for the army, right? You 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 involve soldiers uh, early in it, and it's everything from the fit and wear to a cognitive load to you know how it might be employed in the situation, 
you know, how fragile the system might be in terms of not just the brittleness of, of the AI, but, you know, in terms of how it's, it, it's a part of the, you know, the, the mechanical widget that's in a sense attached or, or part of the, the soldier as, as she's accomplishing her mission. But then the other perspective is um, General Jim Rainey uh, uh, gave a talk on the uh, uh, AUSA, um, which is a, an annual conference that, that, that talks about the, the state of the Army, um, as well as uh, uh, technological trends and where we might see ourselves in the future. And he gave a lunchtime talk. And he said, when we think about, you know, trusting in terms of individuals, in terms of other units, he has a simple formula. It's, it's training plus testing equals trust. Mm. And I think it's, 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 it's a very useful analogy, even in, in yeah. thinking about this space, right? Because um, whether you're talking from the test side or even from just the human side, right? The Army's a large bureaucracy. And so by the time someone like me moves to the pipeline from basic training, right? The gaining unit, that commander can expect that I have a certain set of skills, right? There's a, a sort of initial trust that I'm competent at a such and such level. That's not gonna be sufficient, um, but at, at least there, there's that certain expectation. And then the unit then can train me in new skills, test me to ensure that I, that I can complete those skills. And then in a sense, you know, my, the level of trust that they would have in me as a soldier, as, as a member of that team will grow. And we do the same thing even in terms of units, right? So you know, uh, when I've been deployed or even you know, at training, I will get cross-attached another unit. And they come, you know, in a sense, at a certain level of trust because I, you know, trust that they have met the certain training requirements. Mm -hmm. But do I really know them, right? And, and, and in a sense, you know, you know, hopefully I have an opportunity to, to, to train them myself and, and test them at home station before we're, you know, say, deployed operationally. But even then, I might, you know, restrict their employment in certain operations in, in areas that I'm confident that I know that they can accomplish that mission. And mm -hmm. based then on my evaluation of it, and since my own observation of how they're being tested operationally, then I can create the adjustments. And I think answering back to, to uh, uh, you know, the ADC, um, the Deputy Commander of Futures Command's question, that actually informs part of this notion, right? So um, getting the, the soldiers and the users and commanders involved um, early in, in, the, in the design and development process, mm -hmm. getting their input through testing and evaluation of it, right? To ensure that it's not just safety, which is gonna be you know, necessary, but it won't necessarily be sufficient for it to be responsible. Um, and then, you know, in a sense, putting it through its paces, right? It's training and testing before it's actually employed in the field is going to engender sort of this other aspect of trust, right? That they know that they can employ that um, and, and confidently. Um, I mean, because artificial intelligence is, you know, very similar to other tech, and, and, but it, it is going to be unique, in particular with learning systems, right? By definition, sure. they're, they, they're different the next day, right? They, if, unless they're, they're frozen uh, upon deployment, right? And, and so, you know, how we, we, we take a look at modifying our testing evaluation, right? How, how we look at um, the, 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 the validation, do we have a process of recurring val validation if it is a, a continuing learning system, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, it's getting new information, uh, desires to be updated in situ, right? You know, so, and, and, and thinking about the timing of it, thinking about how to do that in, in a responsible way, um, you know, to ensure that, that we can, you know, bottom line is deploy it responsibly. Sure. What, um, you know, you, uh, when you're not, when you haven't been thinking of all this and you're not teaching, you also uh, had the opportunity to um, to write a book. It's on the shelf there behind you. Uh, the ethics of military privatization, uh, the U.S. armed contractor phenomena. Um, you know, it's interesting. I have somewhere around this house here. I have a uh, a book from about 20 years ago called Blood Song, um, and it's about sort of the the story of the um, one of the uh, sort of the original modern private military companies, executive outcomes uh, from, from South Africa. Maybe not a lot of people know that story. Many more are familiar, obviously, with um, uh, Black, uh, Blackwater and in sort of recent uh, decades. Um, but now, you know, I, I look at some of the firms that are out there that are sort of in the private military business, and these are giant Fortune 500 companies nowadays. Um, 
talk a little bit, if you would, about uh, why you wrote the book in the first place, sort of the genesis of all that. I mean, uh, some of the things you discussed there. And then obviously linking to some of these themes we're talking about nowadays, um, when we get into uh, private companies that uh, can not just have military folks, contractors, but may have, you know, private robots and private AI image. I mean, are there other concerns since you've written the book in 2016 that, uh, wow, you know, I didn't think about that then. Maybe I'll, I'll write a new issue about some of these emerging tools and concerns for privatization uh, of them. Take that one if you would. Sure. Well, well first, th that is a great idea. And so when I can carve out some time, I, 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 I definitely an area that I want to continue to pursue. So uh, really the genesis of, of, of that book, and I mean, much like, you know, the, the thinking and the work that I'm doing here in, uh, with uh, Artificial Intelligence Task Force, it, it is, is based on personal experience. Mm -hmm. I have very good friends who are, are private contractors. And, and they, they ranged in, uh, in, in all different aspects of, uh, in particular in logistics, but also in other areas in, in, the, in the mission command aspect of it. Uh, and I even worked closely with some of the security uh, contractors uh, who had, uh, you know, were, were protecting individuals, the Department of State individuals, uh, uh, work at the Justice Department overseas, et cetera. Um, and, and I was really curious as, uh, and again, part of it was a, being a bit naive was uh, I just assumed, you know, at a young age that, uh, you know, everybody would be military, right? Would, this was a military operation. Um, and I really didn't appreciate how expansive um, both uh, the government involvement would be, but also how the private sector really supports it. Um, and, and the thing uh, in, in, in doing the research, I uh, realized a couple of things. One is uh, the, the U.S. has a long history since, since our very foundings of relying upon uh, a, a private assistance in, in a variety of manners. Um, and so in, in a way, it's not new. Um, but then you had, uh, you know, relatively recently, like you mentioned executive outcomes, you had companies that were hired to do offensive operations, right? They're hired to conduct, in, in a way, combat. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for a long time, the, 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 the global norm you know, you know, in a sense, push that aside, right? So it, um, we, why, why you saw private service was the, was the norm, in, you know, throughout the Middle Ages and later uh, in, into uh, 17th and early 18th century, right? It was, you know, really the, the, the shifting from the French Revolution on of, of, of developing a nation's army sort of, you know, from an, uh, its own population, right? So the, the Republican ideal, little R of, of uh, you know, uh, providing service back to the community uh, you know, that which you live and and and, uh, and thrive from. Um, and, and but th there was much pushback against having mercenaries. Um, you know, both in the Middle Ages, part of it because it became you know the side this proverbial dirty word, right? That it was, um, uh, you know, they, they were running mucks. You know that they that they need they have this bloodlust that they need war in order to to even you know in a sense as part of their their business model. Um, but when you do much more rigorous ex exploration, you realize that there are all kinds of aspects of what it takes to, to, uh, to deploy an army overseas. Mm -hmm. um, and that you, in a sense, you don't have all of that expertise nor do you have all that equipment, those resources resonant within the military itself. Um, and so, you know, at different times in our history, we've had to, to, to reach out to, uh, you know, private industry, whether it's for transfer, transportation, uh, whether it's for expertise in our systems. And, and in a way that's beginning to grow, right? As our technological systems are becoming more and more advanced, um, you, you, you don't have, um, the, the, in a sense, the, re the resident expertise mm. uh, to, to, to do all maintenance and, and troubleshooting aspects of it, right? I, I, I liken it as an, as an example of, of, of cars. You know, my, my first car, you know, I, I could I could mess with just about everything in it to, in order to to keep it running much longer than it probably should have been running, but but very rapidly, right over the course of my adult life, they're becoming much more complex in a sense, you know, controlled but with computer systems, um, and in a way that um, that I became less and less comfortable with my ability to do troubleshooting and maintenance on that vehicle, and so that's just one area where we've seen a, an increase in privatization. Um, you know, part of the concern is uh, uh, is how 
widespread privatization might affect the, the military when it considers itself as a profession, mm. right? If, if, we, if we, part of the notion and definition of a profession is we're responsible for, you know, policing ourselves, but, but mostly responsible for this body of knowledge and expertise, right? And, and developing uh, the, 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 the in-house, the, the people to be able to, to, to work that. Um, and, you know, as, as we're potentially whole scaling you know, outsourcing different aspects of it, then eventually, right, we might lose um, some of that expertise in, in house. Um, the other th dynamic that you see is that we're not the only country that that has turned to privatization. So, you know, we might use, um, you know, what, what used to be KBR, DynCorp's done a number of times, right? Our log, log cap, uh, logistic capacity, right? Uh, logistical support contracting. Um, and, and we certainly, um, it wasn't just the military, right? Department of Defense and other, or state and others uh, turned to, to private security, right? right to it, it, tasks. Again, it wasn't to conduct these offensive operations, right? It wasn't, you know, uh, in, in a sense like executive outcome. Um, but we, in a sense, self-selected that, right? We chose to limit uh, the, the, the tasks, the missions that we would allow a privatized element to be able to perform. And, you know, quite frankly, whether it's other states or even non-state actors, right, even criminal organizations, they have no, no reason not to do that, right? So in other words, if there's a demand that's out there and someone's willing to offer those kind of services for a price, um, it's going to be a very difficult to be able to control that. And nowadays, as you mentioned, uh, with the new technology, right, it's, you know, I mentioned earlier about the contractors that, you know, they're coming to the FOB with the new equipment. Mm -hmm. um, it, we're, we are going to continue to see um, that be, because it requires so much, you know, specific expertise in, in, in maintaining a system, I, I can foresee that some of that will continue to be um, sourced by a, a private uh, a public partnership so that we can, in a sense, have the soldier, she can be focused on actually employing that system to accomplish her mission, right? Um, and so what dynamic does that uh, uh, might change further on? Well, I think one of the things with artificial intelligence is, you know, very simply it's, it's you know, it's the triad, it's algorithms, it's data, it's computing power mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, the, it's gonna be democratized, right? If you would, uh, some people might say there might be a, a proliferation, right? There's, even though we might, you know, secure uh, our algorithms and data, right, and our systems be to be used in only certain circumstances, right, and again in accordance with our values. Um, it you can see that uh, that someone with more nefarious intentions might be able to, uh, in a sense, repurpose it, right. I mean, yeah. so so or, or use a similar algorithm, right, um, to to achieve different means, uh, and and that's that's troubling because in, in a sense, this kind of technology. Right, it's much more difficult to, to have some sort of international um, uh, 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 control over the, the import and export of it, like you would say with more concrete um, uh, uh, components of a weapon system, right. like like uranium. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's not just uh, that we might have uh, near peer adversaries that are going to employ AI systems on the on the battlefield, right? But but you could have non-state actors also. Uh, doing the same kind of thing, much like we saw uh, uh, in Syria and elsewhere, right? Taking an off-the-shelf quadcopter and and you know, you know putting a, a munition on it, yeah. um, and then flying that. Uh, uh, so so taking that technology has trickled down in the same way you could say some of this, and, that, and I think that raises a, another question about you know this concern and 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 this desire to to try to come to international consensus on whether we're banning or somehow controlling the, the, this broad concept of lethal autonomy is really pinning down what exactly we mean by, by a, a lethal autonomous system. Um, but then, you know, how might we practically actually control that so that there would be, um, in a sense, no proliferation of, of, of the technology if we had deemed it um, the, uh, as, as something that needed to be prohibited or banned, right? So, and I think that's where, um, you know, that conversation, right, meaningful conversation between, mm -hmm. you know, the government, academia, and, and private sector is going to be absolutely essential moving forward, right? It just, that, that's not the only area, but it, but it highlights th this idea that um, 
you know, we want to ensure that the technology we're developing and, and the tools associated with that, and even the downstream spinoffs that come out of that are, are gonna be as a benefit to our, not just for national security, right? But for society as a well. whole. Fascinating topics. I think you have another book there too, <laughs> coming out of all this. Really, really interesting stuff, Dave. Um, talk a, a little bit, if you would, um, about some of um, your your mentors, uh, your influencers that have been along with you uh, on this amazing journey that you had so far. Obviously, you met a lot of fascinating people in the service, uh, in academia, in, in sort of the industry, uh, cl collaborations that you've had. Um, Obviously, there's probably a lot of them, but take some time, if you would, just to uh, mention, shout out to some of the really important folks that uh, have guided you on this path uh, to date. So, I, you know, I, I, I'd mentioned earlier my, my grandfather, right? And, yeah. and, and, and again, um, you know, it informed a, a lot of my, my thinking, not just about the, the, the need for service, um, but, uh, you know, in a sense, how much you, you need to be responsible for your own learning and, uh, and, and the pathway to, to how best to, uh, to, to, to serve. Um, very fortunate to have a, a number of, of mentors. Um, in, in the department, uh, former department head, uh, Brigadier General Tony Hartle, uh, was not only instrumental in, in you know, giving me the opportunity to come back to the department, again, odd duck, you know, uh, aerospace engineer kind of guy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, teaching philosophy, you know, you know is, is that even the, is that even the right fit? Um, he uh, served in, not just in the department, but also uh, on, on the, the shuttle commission, right? So he, he demonstrated that um, you can take not just your experience in the military, but also your background in philosophy and ethics to be able to explore uh, a technical problem. So we had the failure, like the Clint, right? Like how, how best to, to identify uh, what the causal chain was, but the proximate cause, and, and could you affect an organization, even from someone externally? Um, and I've had a number of opportunities to, to do that uh, uh, for the military in a, number, in a couple of different dynamics. Um, but he was also uh, charged with creating a philosophy program here at West Point. Um, after the uh, cheating scandal in 76, the Borman Commission uh, directed West Point to, to take a look at its honor code and, and develop a program of education that would help inform the students the, the ethical grounding of what an honor code might mean. You mm -hmm. know, do not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. You know, those are, you know, in the sense, part of the, you know, like a motto to, to, to follow this aspirational, um, but understanding that the, the philosophy behind that. Um, and, and, you know, he, he was able to, to create a program where we would, um, that's, every student here takes, it's a combination of critical reasoning and logic, uh, normative ethical theories, right, to provide that grounding, and then a deep dive into just war theory, right, so that our students would have a, a better understanding of uh, not just what it meant to serve their oath of office, um, but also when we talk about following the law of armed conflict, what that really meant and, and, and why that was grounded and why that's, why uh, the American public expected us to perform in, in that way. Um, th there have been a, a number of, of, uh, of folks, in, including um, you know, Alistair Norcross, Professor Norcross at uh, CU Boulder, uh, who's a staunch utilitarian, um, but he really helped push me uh, to think about um, my philosophical arguments and perspective and worldview uh, in, in a more rigorous way, right? So by, by challenging some of my viewpoints, but then creating a, a, a space where uh, I could also explore it, helped me refine uh, not just my thinking about privatization, but also how I think about how to, to uh, um, work in the emerging technology space. Um, another one, a, a recent, a great friend of mine is Dr. Heather Roth, um, who works at the John Hopkins uh, uh, APL, um, because she, she is, so rigorous in terms of her approach um, that, you know, when, when I bounce ideas uh, off her, I mean, she, she really helps me stay focused. And it was really a pleasure to work with her because she was the primary author uh, for the Dib Principles and really helped me explore that space 
And so I could better understand this notion of how we could have these aspirational principles, but yet then I could have a, a similar conversation, say with Army senior leadership about what those principles actually mean in practice and how we might move forward. Um, uh, and, and there's, there's of course, m many others um, and uh, too, too, too many to, to, to thank. Uh, sure. But uh, yeah, it's, it, I, I've had a very, uh, a great ride. I mean, it's, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's one of these uh, with the number of roles that I've been uh, able to do. Um, you really begin to realize not just how important it is, but how much more work needs to be done. Oh, yeah. Right? So opportunities like this to engage with with um, with uh, you know, the folks uh, that, that we're speaking to today, um, the more conversations that we have, I think, can help um, you know people that represent these different stakeholders, right? Especially in, in new technologies, you know, at a minimum, have a better understanding of of the different perspectives that we come from, right? Too often, I find you know uh, uh, folks in, in either academe, right, or or in the, in the private sector. Uh, don't realize that that the army is you know follows the law of armed conflict that they were informed by by these these uh, uh, ethical precepts. Uh, at the same time, that you know many of my military colleagues, um, you know, don't understand some of the constraints that that apply um, in, in the civilian world. Um, that, as Neil deGrasse Tyson said, uh, as one of the Dib board members in terms of uh, AI, it's like America has, a large portion of America has uh, really great fears about the future of artificial intelligence. And some of those fears may be irrational, but we have to address them because, sure. you know, it, it, they're, they're not just motivated by, by science fiction. They have real concerns about the future for themselves, for their families, for their communities. And it's incumbent on all of us, regardless of what um, camp that we, we come from, uh, to not only address those, um, but but then ensure that our work is going to be in line with that. Outstanding, outstanding. Um, Dave, I, it's it's been an amazing story. I just have one one other thing to ask you. I hear this is obviously the the comical question of the show, but I, I wanted I want to do it anyway. Um, uh, throughout your journey, um, have you? <laughs> And especially with your scholarly understanding of, of just war and, and uh, privatization and humanitarian issues and everything that goes along with sort of the philosophy and war and peace. Uh, during your career, have you ever found yourself inside the Pentagon? And I'm, a, I'm a child of the 1960s and a big fan of Peter Sellers. Have you ever said to anyone inside the Pentagon, you can't fight in here. This is the Pentagon. <laughs> That's right. Or, or, or come on, they're going to see the big board, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You turn the big board. Okay. I yeah. just had to throw that one out there. But. Well, it, 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 it's, it's funny you mention that. I'm, I'm actually uh, one of those ones, fortunate or not, that, that, that never made it into the Pentagon since I was a child and went to visit my grandfather until very late in my career. Okay. Um, and so it was always a place that, you know, as a young officer, you said, oh, you know, kind of a, a, avoid that, right? No one wants to be close to the proverbial flagpole. Right, there's way way too many generals and, and you know seniors running around. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's definitely an interesting place. So, um, but absolutely, no 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 fighting there. Okay. For sure. <laughs> oh well, once again, David, it's 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 been a really great time. I I, uh, I wish you the best with all of this. You have um, as I said, a fascinating convergent um, set of responsibilities, and uh, wishing you the best with all of it. Uh, moving forward and what you're going to do and obviously teaching the next generation um, for everybody that's going to be listening to this show on the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel. Uh, you've been listening to Colonel Dr. David Barnes, Chief Artificial Intelligence Ethics Officer at the United States Army Artificial Intelligence Task Force, uh, Professor at the United States Military Academy at West Point, uh, where he's the Deputy Head of the Department of English and Philosophy and a Research Associate for their Center of Innovation Engineering, Senior AI Ethics Advisor for DARPA, uh, still 30-year career uh, officer in the United States Army. Uh, check out his book, The Ethics of Military Privatization in the U.S. Uh, Armed Contractor Phenomena. Uh, Dave, I want to once again thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us. Uh, thank you for everything you're doing. And as we say on the show, thank you through your initiatives for helping uh, to create a, a safer and better tomorrow for all of us. It's, uh, it's been really uh, a fascinating time listening to your story. Thank you so much. It's 
Steve, been an honor and an absolute pleasure having this conversation with you today. So I look forward to, to, to further conversations and, and continued collaboration and work in this important space. So thank Absolutely. you again. And, and once again, I, I was remiss. Thank you again for your long service to the country. Uh, it's, it's an honor talking to you.